water, it's powerful and, and relentless. And uh, if you're not heads up about that, it can it could definitely be devastating for a rescuer as well as, a, as the person you're trying to rescue. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. Enchanted Sky Studios in Prescott, Arizona. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategies, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. You are listening to the show for and about firefighters. Let's get started. Swift water rescues are among the most dangerous rescues that you'll face. That may sound obvious, but some departments that haven't seen many swift water incidents have been taken by surprise. Here out west, we have unique situations where dry riverbeds or washes accumulate trash and broken branches for months before they turn to raging rivers during the wet season. But no matter where you work, there are some principles of water rescue that simply should not be ignored or downplayed. Here to talk about them is Kevin Keith. Kevin is a captain and paramedic at Prescott, Arizona Fire. He's been on the job for nearly 20 years. He's a swift water rescue expert as well as a technical rescue technician. And Kevin Keith joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Hello, Scott. So if you're not from Arizona, you might be wondering why I'm talking water rescue with a firefighter from the dry, dusty desert. Kevin, give us the reality of life in Arizona. Well, like you said, Scott, it is a dry and dusty the majority of the time with beautiful skies and great weather. However, we do have two seasons which produce quite a bit of precipitation in the, in the wintertime. Uh, it seems like we get winter storms that can be pretty catastrophic, and at our elevation, that includes snow most of the time, which will eventually melt and become water. But more importantly, our monsoon season creates flash flooding, which can be uh, pretty impressive, especially in the dry waterways that we have throughout the town in our surrounding area. What's the most common type of water rescue that you guys see? Having someone drive into a wash that they think they can make it through. That It seems like people trapped in vehicles in waterways is the most common rescue that we perform. So when it comes to a vehicle stuck in a flooded wash, would you prefer to use an aerial ladder or swim or wade out to it? Of course, the ladder is our preference if we can reach it. You know, when we use an order of operations that, uh, you know, from from low risk to high risk to try to make that that determination, I mean, a lot of times when we arrive on scene, you know, we'll speak with a person and talking is actually the lowest risk. If we can coach a person out or into a position uh, that's safe, that's ideal. But if we're talking about a vehicle stuck in a moving waterway, there's not much more to that one. Uh, reaching, like you said, with a ladder is ideal. Throwing is is the next thing, and you know that often requires throwing ropes uh, or rope bags, and and that's not really always a really good uh, option for us, just because you know 
civilians and vehicles aren't usually equipped with uh, flotation or a helmet or anything, and they're not dressed for the occasion. We'll weigh it out um, and bring the appropriate equipment to people if the water seems like it's it's at an appropriate height, nothing more, you know, usually uh, nothing much higher than our waist, and we'll accompany the person back to shore. A helicopter is an option. They have a hoist that they can use to pull people out of vehicles, and it seems to be a little bit safer than us swimming to a vehicle. And then rowing, taking a boat would be one of our way down the line, one of our last resorts. But the going, the swimming for a person, that's that's definitely the last option. That's putting two moving bodies in a, in the waterway. And like you probably are aware, our waterways, you know, get overgrown in the times when there's not water flowing through them strongly. And then there's often utility pipes and um, other other obstacles like barbed wire fences that can be, you know, a hazard for us. So what you're saying then is that you would prefer not to put anybody else in the water at all if you possibly can avoid it. Yes, sir. And I think that's a really good thing also for bystanders. I think oftentimes, you know, people want to help their neighbor as quickly as possible. And that often means, you know, trying to get out to them and help them out. But I would caution folks, especially if you don't have a uh, EFD or a life jacket, that could be, you know, catastrophic for you as well. Now, you mentioned that throw bags are not always the best option. How effective have they been? You know, in the rescue community, or at least in our response model, we really think about the throw bags being mainly for the rescuers. So that would be like if if you were swimming for the car and uh, missed your mark or fell off, you know, like the vehicle and ended up floating downstream, the throw bag, it takes a, a little bit of an acquired skill to, to be able to use it effectively as the person receiving the, the line. And so, you know, it's not, I mean, we'll throw it to people, but I, up until now, I've never had to throw one to a person yet. We've only thrown them to rescuers, and they are quite effective in those circumstances. But oftentimes, especially with tree-lined uh, banks and, and other obstacles in the water, you know, they have a limit to, what, to their effectiveness. Now, your department has a boat. That is not, I would imagine, what you would consider a common tool for swift water rescue. But where have you used it, and where has it been effective? We qualify a surface water you know, swift water is a component of that when it's running through a channel. But on the lakes, we use our, we have a, like a, an Achilles. Uh, it's a rubber boat with a, an aluminum hull on the bottom, but it's inflatable and it has a, a power motor on it. And we use that around the lake. We also have an inflatable raft that's used for swift water specifically. And what's really great about that, Scott, is we can put that on a rope and use kind of rope systems in addition to having, you know, uh, paddlers in the boat. And that's kind of a, a hybrid rescue technique where we can, you know, go to the victim, but also have the luxury of a, of a, of a tethered line. And we haven't used one of those yet, but it's, it's definitely in our bag of tricks. Now, when would you pull that out of the bag? What circumstance fits it? An example would be a vehicle in, in a crossing that's washed downstream off of the roadway. That would be a position where our ladder wouldn't be able to reach or there's not sure footing for us as we enter the waterway. So we'll put a boat on a tether at that point, and we can lower it from a high point uh, down the waterway and make access to the people in the vehicle. And then we'll be able to pull that boat 
sideways back to the bank after we we load the patients. So what are the most common mistakes that you see people make, especially in training for swift water rescue? Good question. Well, one is just with regard to rope in the water. You know, when we're training for swift water rescue, knowing how to deploy throw bags and knowing how to receive throw bags is really tricky. You know, having what we do is we try to affect our bodies um, at an angle to the current, which allows the current to do a lot of the work for us. And newer rescuers oftentimes are fighting the current. So they're trying to swim against it and not really, they don't really have a concept of how to use it to their advantage. And so I'd say that was, that's probably the first or one of the, well, that's one of the, of the issues, but another one would be walking into water blindly and facing the wrong direction. Um, entrapment hazards are very common rocks in the bottom of, of the waterway, uh, downed logs and other debris that we're unable to see, especially in murky flood water. So walking blindly into the water without either probing with a staff or, or facing a right direction, or in most cases, we try not to walk if we can avoid it, you know, if the water uh, is, is deeper. And in those circumstances, you know, we'll take a, a defensive swimming position. But yeah, I think, you know, the rookie mistakes are just blindly walking into water without regard for the current because water, is, it's powerful and, and relentless. And uh, if you're not Heads up about that. It could it could definitely be devastating for a rescuer as well as a as the person you're trying to rescue. How does water rescue at night differ? I mean, it's got to be harder. But what are the major factors? I think you know one thing in the fire service and well maybe all rescue services is accountability, and you know part of it is also doing no further harm. So obviously you know lack of visibility makes it hard to keep track of both resources as well as, um, you know, the people that you're trying to rescue. When we, we try to deal with that issue is by putting glow sticks taped to helmets, put different colors, you know, the rescuers maybe will have the green and the, the patients or the victims or the subjects will have, you know, an orange. And that way, if someone ends up in the water and they're floating down, we can, can try to keep eyes on them throughout. But mainly for us and the few times that we've done night rescues in water we just try to light up the scene as much as possible and that's really where our helicopter can be invaluable if they're willing to show up and you know in our response area we have a native air medical helicopter sometimes will lend a hand as long as it doesn't interfere with their ability to also provide life safety in other regards but we call for dps and or um, we have an option of using the phoenix fire department and their uh, firebird to assist with that you know, aerial lighting. And that, that definitely makes a difference. What is a typical response time to get to the scene and get set up for something like this? You know, as in general, our response times are, are you know, first unit on scene. And, and we really shoot for that targeted, you know, uh, four minutes or less. And, and that really depends on the location, obviously. The way that Prescott Fire is situated, well, two things I want to bring up. One is, we work within a, a regional team concept. And so what's happened is members of Central Arizona Fire and Medical, Prescott Fire, the Williamson Valley Baghdad Fire and Medical District, and Yavapai County Search and Rescue, we've all built a consortium to where we have personnel that are interoperable. Um, we train together, we, we you know talk shop together, and, and we plan our response together. So. That definitely helps manage that response. 
But like you said, with regard to time, you know, our first unit gets on scene, those guys just throw on a, a PFD or a life jacket and a helmet. They grab throw bags and then they position themselves uh, accordingly. The captain usually on that first engine or a technician who happens to also be on that, on that engine that doesn't necessarily have to be a captain will help coordinate a quick plan, call for the resources they think they need. Anytime that it's a known rescue with regard, especially to swift water, they'll, they will call out the station that I work at, which is the slated technical rescue station, but we'll also call for a ladder. So if the ladder is not in the first due, a ladder truck will show up as well. This provides enough personnel for upstream and downstream uh, containment. We'll put spotters in place. We'll have people with throw bags, mainly like we talked about earlier, for the rescuer's benefit. Although if a, if a, if a competent or, or brave uh, soul that ends up in the water can hold onto a rope, then good for them. Uh, we'll put the ladder in play if, we, if it can reach. If not, we'll call early for the helicopter as well. And we'll have members on the ground. Usually uh, the support and engine 74 will roll immediately. And uh, RPP, you know, we're willing to, to go in with the, with the you know, the, the clothing and, that we have provided. It's a quick switch for us to get into that gear. And usually by the time the, the whole scene is set up and managed and the IC is on scene, we'll, we'll be able to uh, make a pretty quick response. I'd say, you know, if we could target of 10 minutes, all personnel on scene, we really, it's been a real success. And like, you know, things, things shift constantly, especially with, uh, in the water scenario, which is kind of a, an immediate, uh, rescue response. I mean, there's not a lot of messing around with that. Well, with the vehicle in the water, do you send some, some crew members downstream to be prepared in case it moves, or does everybody concentrate on the vehicle? Yes, sir. We, we'll send people downstream, and what we'll do is when we make a containment zone, there's several things we consider, and that is, you know, we're looking for any obstacles in the water, anything that might pose a serious threat like barbed wire fences, utility poles, other bridges or tunnels further downstream. And then we'll uh, appropriately stage ourselves upstream of those hazards, but downstream from the victim if we can, you know, that would be ideal in a manner to allow us a, a buffer to be able to, you know, operate within that range. And then there's a whole host of different techniques we can use. We can have a raft in the water downstream on a line. We can have a, a, what's called a Carlson board. It's like a big boogie board uh, and a person tethered holding on to one of those to go out. We could have a strong swimmer prepared on the bank and, um, and throw baggers. The highest risk thing would be to put, you know, anyone swimming in the water in a flooded uh, waterway. It's just not ideal around here, as you know, with all the brush and, uh, and what we, and we call those strainers is what we refer to those because they work like a sieve. And it's very, very difficult to get out just as a rescuer alone. And if you're holding on to a, uh, a person, a civilian, while you're trying to also manage that, it, it just becomes a very, very dire situation. We try to avoid all that. What I'm hearing from you is that things are different with swift water rescue in this part of the country than other parts might be. Is that true from your experience? Well, from what I've seen and heard and, and spoken with, everyone contends with a... Uh, you know, very regional specific hazards and, and challenges. I'm sure in the East Coast, even though they have waterways that flow frequently, you know, when those get flooded, just the industrial component and the population density could probably make those really a, a challenge, I would, I would assume. But I'll, 
But yes, the West, and especially in the desert West, we contend with a, a lot of hazards. And and I want to add, you know, because I think maybe um, departments that frequently deal with water moving in their in their response area kind of have a real um, a knack for how to how to work within that. And because we have flood events that are very inconsistent. You know, you may have one or two big rescues in your career and then go, you know, a decade where either you're not on shift or you're not part of that team. And so because of that, it's imperative that we schedule training, you know, frequently in order to be able to address that skill level and maintain our ability to to navigate in and rushing water. And we try to mimic that when water is high on the birdie or on the salt river, we try to go down to those rivers and do our training to mimic the the rescue profile, which is heavily treed banks, uh, rocky waterways, and unfortunately, with a myriad of hazards such as floating tree debris and uh, strainers. All right, good information, Kevin Keith. Thanks for being with me on Coach Relay. Hey, thank you so much, Scott. And we put some more information about swift water rescue techniques on our website at code3podcast.com slash wet. Check it out. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. This time we talked about tactics and safety in swift water rescue. I'd like to hear about your experiences and what you've learned from them. Just email me, scott at code3podcast.com, or leave a voicemail at 562-337-9902. I will read your comments and play your messages on a future show. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's topic, or subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.